0: The first of my posts to the Facebook group was a focus summary of Part 3, Chapter 5. Raskolnikov comes into Porfiry Petrovich's room, still laughing, and Razumihin strides in awkwardly and red with shame. Raskolnikov holds out his hand to greet Porfiry, apparently making desperate efforts to subdue his mirth. Then he glances, as if accidentally, at Razumihin, and begins laughing again. His laughter and Razumihin's anger give the whole scene an appearance of genuine fun, which Razumihin strengthens on purpose by waving his arm and calling Raskolnikov a fiend. In doing so, he knocks a tea-glass off a table and breaks it, and turns away embarrassed. Porfiry Petrovich awaits an explanation for the laughter while Zamyatov, who had been sitting in the corner, looks upon the scene with surprise and embarrassment. Raskolnikov is annoyed to see Zamyatov, realizing he now has to think of him, too. Raskolnikov finally explains that Razumihin is in a rage because he called him a Romeo, and Razumihin finally bursts out laughing himself and turns back to introduce Raskolnikov to Porfiry Petrovich saying that he has some business with him. Razumihin expresses surprise to see Zamyatov there, asking if they know each other, and Raskolnikov wonders uneasily what his presence means. Zamyatov says they met the day before, at Razumihin's. Porfiry is a stout, clean-shaven man of about thirty-five, wearing a dressing gown and slippers. He has a sickly complexion and wears an ironical expression, with seriousness in his eyes. He invites Raskolnikov to sit down, waiting for him to explain his business with an over-serious attention to him. Raskolnikov explains the reason for his visit clearly and exactly, and Razumihin watches their interaction with excessive interest. Porfiry Petrovich explains that he need only write a letter to him, claiming his property. When Raskolnikov asks whether it should be an ordinary piece of paper, Porfiry Petrovich says, oh, the most ordinary, and, Raskolnikov fancies, looks at him with obvious irony. He knows, flashes through Raskolnikov's mind. He apologizes for seeming so anxious about such trifles, but says they are of sentimental value. The whole time, he worries to himself whether he is being sufficiently natural. Porfiry asks when Raskolnikov's mother arrived. He then reassures Raskolnikov that his belongings are safe. He found them among the old woman's things, clearly labeled, and adds that he had been expecting him— since everyone else with pledges had already come forward. Raskolnikov offers the excuse that he had not been well, and Porfiry says he had heard that he was in great distress about something. Razumihin says incredulously that Raskolnikov hasn't just been ill, but unconscious and delirious. Raskolnikov tells Porfiry not to believe it, but then adds, that he can see he doesn't believe it anyway. Raskolnikov explains to Porfiry how he went out the day before to escape everyone's attention. He says he took a lot of money with him, saying Zamyatov can confirm that, and feeling as if he could strangle Zamyatov for his silent presence. Porfiry says Nikodim Femich reported that he too saw Raskolnikov at the lodging of a man who had been run over and Razumihin adds that Raskolnikov gave them all his money. Raskolnikov says that perhaps he found a treasure, and he apologizes for boring Porfiry with these details. Porfiry assures him that on the contrary, he is very interested. Raskolnikov is exasperated, thinking to himself that they are playing with him like a cat with a mouse he feels tempted to throw the truth in their faces. Then he hesitates, wondering if it's only his fancy. But he thinks to himself that their tone betrays it all, and he wonders that Razumihin is too much of a blockhead to see it. All this and more swirls through his head violently as he tries to sort out how much they actually know. Porfiry's tone then changes, and he says jovially that the conversation at Razumihin's the night before left him out of sorts. Razumihin tells Raskolnikov that they discussed whether there is such a thing as crime. He explains that it began with the socialist doctrine that crime is only protest against the abnormality of the social organization. He speaks scornfully about their theory that if society becomes organized, crime will cease to exist. He says they fail to take into account human nature, and treat man as if his soul is subject to the rules of mechanics. Porfiry laughs at Razumihin for beating his drum again, and says that he himself believes that environment accounts for a great deal in crime. Razumihin says he can easily prove that Porfiry's white eyelashes can be ascribed to the church of Ivan the Great being 250 feet high. Razumihin tells Raskolnikov that Porfiry just likes to take people's side to make fun of them, and that he is fond of taking people in. Raskolnikov asks if that is true, and Porfiry says to wait a bit, and he will take him in too. Porfiry then asks Raskolnikov about an article he had once written on the subject of crime, and Raskolnikov is astonished he knows of it. Raskolnikov did not know it had been published, and he acts at first as if he can't quite recall what it said. Porfiry says he maintained that certain persons have a right to commit breaches of morality and crimes. There are ordinary men who must live in submission and extraordinary men who have the right to transgress the law. Razumihin declares, astonished, that that can't be right. Raskolnikov smiles and proceeds to explain his contention. In his article, he suggested that an extraordinary man has the right to decide in his own conscience to overstep any obstacles to the fulfillment of his idea. If, for example, the discoveries of Kepler and Newton could be made known only by theft and murder, they have not just the right, but the duty to do so. He argued that the great leaders of men, like Lycurgus and Napoleon, are inherently criminals. In making new laws, they must transgress old ones, and they do not stop short at bloodshed. He expressed the belief that men in general are divided into two categories—the inferior, who are material that serves to reproduce its kind, and those with the talent to utter a new word. For the former, it is their duty to be controlled, and the latter must destroy according to their capacities. The extraordinary man can find in his conscience justification for wading through blood. The masses will still punish them, and in doing so, fulfill their conservative purpose. And then, in the next generation, they worship them. Porfiry asks Raskolnikov if he believes in God. When he says he does, he asks whether he believes, literally, in the story of Lazarus rising from the dead— and Raskolnikov says he believes that, too. Porfiry asks how you distinguish extraordinary men from ordinary men, saying perhaps they could wear a special uniform or something, in case some ordinary man begins eliminating obstacles. Raskolnikov praises him for his wit, and says that, indeed, that happens often. But he adds that it isn't something to worry about, If some ordinary man imagines himself a destroyer, he might need a thrashing to show him his place, but even that isn't necessary, because he will castigate himself. Porfiry then asks how many of these men, with the right to kill, there are. Raskolnikov says that they are extremely few in number, and that the vast mass of mankind is material. The man of genius is one of millions. Watching this conversation from the sidelines, Razumihin at last asks them incredulously if they are both joking. He is troubled by Raskolnikov's seriousness and Porfiry's unconcealed and discourteous sarcasm. Razumihin expresses horror at the idea that Raskolnikov is sanctioning bloodshed by conscience, which he regards as far more terrible than a legal sanction. Porfiry agrees that it is more terrible. Porfiry says he still has anxiety over the question of what happens when some youth imagines himself a lycurgus and sees some great enterprise before him, and Zamyata from his corner lets out a guffaw. Raskolnikov responds that so it is, and so it always will be. But he need not be uneasy, since society is well protected by prisons and criminal investigators. He need only catch the thief. Porfiry asks what happens if they do catch the criminal, and Raskolnikov says he gets what he deserves. Razumihin asks whether men with the right to murder Ought not also to suffer in their conscience for the blood they've shed? Raskolnikov responds that it isn't a question of ought. They will suffer. Great men, he says, must endure great sadness on earth. Porfiry then asks Raskolnikov's forgiveness for inquiring about one more detail. He wants to know whether, in writing his article, Raskolnikov fancied himself an extraordinary man uttering a new word. And if so, whether that means he could bring himself to rob and murder. He asks the question with a smile and a wink. Raskolnikov says haughtily that if he did, he certainly wouldn't tell Porfiry Petrovitch, But he goes on to say that he doesn't consider himself a Napoleon, and so can't know how he would act if he did. From his corner, Zamyatov blurts out that maybe one of these future Napoleons killed Alyona Ivanovna, and Raskolnikov, not responding, keeps his eyes on Porfiry. Then he turns to go. Porfiry says he is glad to make his acquaintance, and tells him to come back in a day or two, so that they might have a talk. Raskolnikov asks sharply whether he is looking for a chance to cross-examine him. And Porfiry says, that isn't necessary for the present. Then Porfiry remembers one more thing he wanted to question Raskolnikov about. He asks him whether it was past seven when he went up the stairs to the old pawnbrokers, and Raskolnikov answers that it was. Porfiry then asks whether he noticed an open flat with two painters. And Raskolnikov swooning with anxiety over what sort of trap Porfiry is endeavoring to lay, responds that he did not see them. He adds that there were movers carrying things out of an apartment on the fourth story. Razumihin interjects indignantly that the painters were there the day of the murder, and not three days before, when Raskolnikov went to see the pawnbroker. Porfiry apologizes for muddling it, saying it would have been such a convenient thing to have a witness in regard to the painters. They say their goodbyes, and Razumihin and Raskolnikov step out into the street, where Raskolnikov draws a deep breath. The next of my posts was called On Crime. One of the many reasons I was completely captivated by this chapter is that we gain a long-awaited insight into Raskolnikov's motive for the murder. We learn of an article he wrote, just after he left the university, explaining his theory that some men are superior to law and morality, and have a right to commit crimes. Given the magnitude of this revelation, it is worth spending some time looking closely at his theory. Raskolnikov believes that an extraordinary man has the right to decide in his own conscience to transgress the law, if doing so is essential for the practical fulfillment of his idea, an idea that ultimately benefits humanity as a whole. If, for example, the discoveries of Newton could be made to the world only by sacrificing the lives of a dozen, a hundred, or even more men, Newton has not just the right, but the duty to eliminate those men for the sake of mankind. He maintains that the great leaders of history, like Kyrgyz, Solon, Muhammad, Napoleon, as legislators and leaders of men, are all criminals by definition. In making new laws, they must transgress the old ones, and shed the blood of the innocent people fighting bravely in defense of them. The great benefactors of humanity—are guilty of terrible carnage. It is against the nature of these extraordinary men, he says, to remain in and submit to the common rut. Ordinary men, conservative in temperament and law-abiding, live to be controlled. Extraordinary men live to destroy. They seek destruction of the present for the sake of betterment of mankind. The greater the dimensions of their new idea, the more bloodshed it might require. The masses will never admit that these great men with new ideas are right, and they will justly punish them to protect their conservative vocation. But, in the next generation, they always put them on a pedestal. The ordinary men are men of the present. The extraordinary men are men of the future. Each has the right to exist, and they will always exist in conflict, until the new Jerusalem, a heaven on earth, is achieved. The extraordinary man, the great genius and crown of humanity, is one in a million. Though Raskolnikov believes there must be a definite law behind the generation of such a man, he does not claim to know what it is. Raskolnikov contends that though these men have a moral right to murder, they will nevertheless suffer for their actions. They are punished by society, of course, but additionally, despite the justice of their actions, they still feel sorry for their victims. He believes that for the man possessed of large intelligence and a deep heart, pain and suffering are inevitable, and that the great man, has a great sadness on earth. It is a theory so monstrous and chilling, and we can see the extent to which Raskolnikov has become enmeshed in the elaborate weavings of his own bizarre, rationalistically detached and inhumane philosophy. It is gratifying to have Porfiry's mocking, and still more, Razumihin's stunned incredulity to keep us grounded. At first, Razumihin is so guilelessly delighted that his friend was published, and he says excitedly that he will run that day to the reading-room and ask for his article. As Porfiry begins to question Raskolnikov about his theme, Razumihin interjects with alarm. What? What do you mean? A right to crime? And then, a moment later, in disbelief that his friend could ever have put forth such a view that can't be right. As Porfiry and Raskolnikov continue their conversation, getting deeper and deeper into the sinister nuances of Raskolnikov's idea, I imagine Razumihin just watching them on the sidelines, as I was, with widening eyes and slackening jaw. I was so relieved when, in the midst of it, he suddenly exclaimed, why, are you both joking? there you sit making fun of one another. Are you serious, Rodia? Raskolnikov exhibits that intelligence that becomes madness, having been consumed by an idea that carries him far away from any common-sense notions of goodness. It is refreshing to have Razumihin, whose feet seem so much more firmly planted on the earth, to endeavor to call him back. At the very least, he gives us a pleasant break from captivation in Raskolnikov's delusions. The last of my posts was called A Great Dissembler. I will confess that when I wrote last week's commentary and speculated about whether Raskolnikov, so contemptuous of the dupes around him, would ever meet his match, I had already read ahead to this chapter and discovered that he would. Finally, we've met someone who projects that he is on to Raskolnikov, and for once, that maybe he, and not Raskolnikov, holds the cards. Despite Raskolnikov's calculated efforts to justify his presence with a trivial excuse, and to project a light-hearted and carefree manner, Porfiry regards him from the moment of his arrival with, quote, that careful and over-serious attention which is at once oppressive and embarrassing, especially to a stranger, and especially if what you are discussing is, in your opinion, of far too little importance for such exceptional solemnity." When Raskolnikov explains to Porfiry that he has come to inquire about how he might redeem the pledges he had left with the old pawnbroker, Porfiry plays along, and offers him a businesslike answer. But he does so with a knowing grin and a wink. At least that is what his manner suggests to Raskolnikov. Raskolnikov is on his toes from the start, feeling sure that Porfiry knows. He is continually anxious about whether he will betray himself and whether he appears natural. All of Porfiry's questions are uttered with the air of a man coolly collected and in the know. He seems to be leading Raskolnikov down a predetermined path. He had been expecting him to come, and hints that he knows the meaning of why it took Raskolnikov so long to do it. He has discovered Raskolnikov's article and sees within it a motive for murder. His confidence exasperates Raskolnikov, who is enraged at what feels like a cat and mouse game and anguished by the fact. That he can't be certain what they know. Contributing to the appearance that Porfiry is in control here is Razumihin's account of him as a great dissembler who is always humbugging. I love Razumihin's story of Porfiry persuading them all that he was getting married, and even ordering the clothes to convince them. And Porfiry's correction that he had the new clothes first, and it was the clothes that gave him the idea of deceiving him. Razumihin, it seems, was doubly deceived. Deceived and deceived about the nature of the deception. Zamyatov, who in their own encounter was such putty in Raskolnikov's hands, now appears such an oaf next to Porfiry. While Porfiry plays his cards close to the chest, questioning Raskolnikov about his theory, and hinting at the suggestion that he himself might have felt justified in committing a crime— Zamyatov just blurts out the supposition that the person who killed the old pawnbroker might have subscribed to this theory. In his own conversation with Raskolnikov, Zamyatov was helplessly spellbound. But Porfiry can hold his own. Porfiry does, however, fail to ensnare Raskolnikov in his final trap. His question of whether or not Raskolnikov saw the painters, which, if he had said he had, would have placed him at the scene on the day of the crime, fails to trip Raskolnikov up. But it does give him a moment of panic, as he ransacks his memory, trying to figure out what Porfiry is up to. Porfiry slaps himself on the head, saying, Foo, I have muddled it. When I created the audio recording for this chapter, I misinterpreted and misread those words. I thought he was genuinely frustrated that he had blown it, but that isn't right. Once Raskolnikov indicates that he is on to him, Porfiry merely pretends that he got the two dates muddled up, when it was obviously deliberate. Raskolnikov reassured Porfiry that if some would-be Napoleon takes it into his head to commit a crime, all he has to do is catch him. So now the question is, will he?